The message is stark. The planet is warming, weather is intensifying and populations are growing and it's having a dramatic effect on our food future. Now while Queensland is flooding and parts of Australia have sweltered through a very hot summer, the United States is suffering a colder than usual winter freeze care of that polar vortex. The extreme weather right around the world has left many wondering just what is going on with our climate. Well, we are now understanding it in more detail and realising that actually the situation is worse than we thought. The, the facts are, are alarming enough without, without scaremongering. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs. Climate change, it's the defining issue of our time. But most people tend to think of far-off distant images of melting ice caps or dwindling polar bear populations. But the impacts of climate change, they're closer than you might think. Wine, chocolate, coffee, really important. <laughs> All affected by climate change. This is not just an Australian thing. This is uh, a global issue. And at the moment, we're, we're OK. We still have those resources. We may not understand the changes till it's too late. And the thing about climate is it's very slow. <laughs> so climate changes are happening over decades. And so for us to wait and see what happens, we, we can't do that. We need to act now, but we are going to see changes to our food. That's Dr Stephanie Downs. She's an oceanographer turned climate scientist. So I am the principal scientist in the climate research team at the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment. And my role in the team is to lead the scientific research design for climate science projects in New South Wales. So those projects are about uh, understanding the impacts of natural hazards on critical infrastructure, and our lives and how that affects us on a local scale where we live. Around many parts of the world, the impacts of climate change have been felt for decades already. So pollution, we've been feeling for decades. If you think of plastics in the ocean, they've seen that in birds since the 1980s in Pacific Islands. Then if you think of sea level rise, sea level rise is affecting communities, particularly your smaller islands and particularly those developing countries already. We're warming a lot faster on land than we are in the ocean. The land absorbs more heat and global warming is a major issue because warming affects your ecosystems. So how exactly does climate change happen? Well, Stephanie says first we need to understand the difference between weather and climate. So weather is your day-to-day -day variation. So it can be really hot. We can have a heat wave day in summer in Sydney all the time. Or we could have a day straight after that that might be 15 or 20 degrees Celsius. So those fluctuations are huge, much bigger than what you get on a climate timescale, which is more of that seasonal, annual, decadal, century, millennia. And so when we're talking about climate change, we talk about long-term patterns in the Earth system. So not what we see as our day-to-day -day variation, if we're going to choose to wear a jumper or a raincoat today, but more about whether we're going to choose to set our thermostat or our air conditioning to a certain degree Celsius for the majority of a season. Climate change is, uh, when we talk about climate change, we're talking about an enhanced greenhouse gas effect. And greenhouse gases are important, 
They're important in the atmosphere because they trap heat. So you have that incoming solar radiation and that's reflected off the Earth and the atmosphere's role is to trap that heat and to keep the Earth's temperature regulated. If we didn't have an atmosphere, if we didn't have greenhouse gases, then we'd be freezing, like on several other planets where you can't have any life. So those greenhouse gases are really important, but the greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and water vapour that are already in the atmosphere are now being enhanced by greenhouse gases that we are emitting through our burning of fossil fuels, for example, or changes in land use. And that enhanced greenhouse gas effect means that we are having a warmer planet. So those two together, those are what we think of when we say climate change. And one example of this is the Great Barrier Reef. If you've got a heat wave or if you've got temperature extremes that last for a certain season, the corals can't recover quickly enough. But climate change can do more than cause coral bleaching. It can threaten our food security because it affects the seasonal cycle and crop distribution. If you are in a much hotter situation, that changes your behaviour, it changes how you can deal with the day, it changes your bills, your expenses, and how you are living your life. It also affects our health and our infrastructure. It affects the way we choose to get to work, how our kids get to school. So those, those sea level rise, that global warming, that increased air pollution, all of that affects all of our life. And like any scientific field, Climate science is pretty complicated. If you think of medicine and you think of the human body, how complicated is that? How complicated the brain is? We don't know everything about the brain, for example. In the same way, climate science is very complicated because we don't know everything about the Earth. It's a really difficult task to understand the Earth every single moment of every single day, every single hour. And the Earth is made up of your atmosphere, land, ocean, ice, and understanding each of the components and how they change over time is difficult. They also move at different speeds. So the atmosphere is circulating, let's say gases or pollution is circulating the Earth on that week's timescale, whereas the ocean is moving on that decades to centuries timescale and ice is moving seasonally, winter and summer. Your land changes are based on land use, for example. So there are a lot of different processes involved. They also happen at different scales. For example, if you're moving carbon dioxide into the bottom of the ocean, that's going from pole to pole, top to bottom of the ocean. If you're moving a hailstorm, that may just be over one city. And the processes involved in that are very different. So because we don't know everything about the Earth at every moment in time, then we need climate models and we need them as tools. They are examples of the Earth. And we have a, a good understanding about how parts of the Earth interact. So we understand how heat moves, how energy moves, how we understand the greenhouse effect. And those understandings we can put into a model and replicate the Earth as a four-dimensional example and run that with different climate forcing to give us an idea of processes behind climate change. So we can observe what's happening and then we can use models as tools to understand why it's happening. Stephanie actually creates climate models and she does this using a supercomputer. What makes it a supercomputer? Well, it has 50,000 times more memory than your home computer. And in Australia, 
these supercomputers are only in Canberra and Western Australia. So like any model, you have to put stuff in, you run a model, get stuff out. And that's any sort of computer simulation. So we're going to think of the Earth made of Lego bricks, just for a second. About a million Lego bricks, let's say. <laughs> so maybe a bit more than what's in my kids' collection, only just. <laughs> so think of each of those Lego bricks. And for each brick covering the whole Earth, latitude and longitudes, covering height going up into the atmosphere, depth going down into the ocean, each of them has a certain dimension. So a typical global climate model will have a dimension of 100 kilometres or 200 kilometres by 200 kilometres for each brick. So pretty big bricks. So we take those bricks and we have to feed the model so it can start replicating the Earth. And we feed it with many measurements of temperature, salt, wind speed, radiative forcing. So for example, for temperature, we get information from satellites, we get it from ship observations, we get it from weather stations, we get it from all sorts of other places. We also have measurements that are dating back at least 100 years. So we're talking about millions and millions of measurements that we can take and put into the model. So we're not, this isn't guesswork, we are putting things that we have observed. We also take a lot of mathematical equations for those models, talking about how each of those bricks is going to interact, so how it's going to move heat from one cell to another through that, whether that's conduction, convection, whether that's energy moving around. And so we've taken those inputs, we've got our bricks in place, they know how to interact with each other, and then we need to apply some sort of forcing. We're looking at the trends. How has the climate changed over time? How has the radiative balance, so that's the amount of radiation coming into the Earth, going out, so that, that heat, think of that heat if you like, or energy going in and out of the Earth, how does that change? And that helps us to set up the model so it can run over time. Now, each of those bricks in the atmosphere, land, ocean, ice, they are interacting every 36 seconds in our New South Wales government climate model. For a global climate model with that 200 kilometre by 200 kilometre brick, that is interacting probably every 30 minutes or so. And they are sending messages to each other just in the same way when we're outside, the clouds send messages to the earth. It could be through rain, for example, or you might have incoming uh, sunlight and that's going to warm up the earth. So all those interactions are taking place in the model as well. I will never look at Lego blocks the same again. So what are the regional climate projections across New South Wales saying? In terms of temperature, there are increased number of heatwave days, particularly in the western half of the state. So as we're going into the 21st century, we're seeing 5, 10, 20 more heatwave days a year. So heatwave is when your uh, temperature is over 35 degrees Celsius for a few days or more. And if we're seeing more of those, that directly relates to how we're functioning, how much air conditioning we're going to have every summer. The clothes we need to wear where we live affects our farming. This, so these agricultural regions, for example, are directly impacted by these huge changes in temperature. We're also seeing a lot of increases and decreases in rainfall. So uh, there are wet and dry patterns, there are seasonal changes as well. Another major thing is your forest fire danger. So longer 
fire seasons. We're seeing that already now where our bushfire season is starting in August and it's going for longer. So this is really important in terms of recovery from fires and how prepared are we for having fires happen so much throughout the year. Like many people, you might think that climate change will just lead to hotter weather and that aircon and fans will get us through the summer. But the flow-on effects are a bit more serious. A major focus for our team actually is compound and coincident hazards. So that means where are natural hazards like bushfires, floods, droughts, storms, temperature extremes, extreme rainfall, where are they happening at the same time or if they're happening at the same time in the same state or across, let's say, eastern Australia, what is the compounding effect of that? And this is a major topic at the moment. It's also something that we are still learning the impacts of. There are a lot of climate extremes, a lot of changes we're seeing that we have never seen before. And so being prepared for those and understanding those is something we're learning on the fly with all of the knowledge that we already have about the climate. In Australia, the majority of us live on the coast. And this is an area that's already starting to feel the impacts of climate change. For example, we have coastal inundation and erosion. You have changes in that sea level rise and wave height dynamics that are affecting the coastline. There's warming of oceans that affect reefs. So the Ningaloo Reef, the Great Barrier Reef, those are affected by marine heat waves. They're affected by heat waves that are causing stress on corals. Uh, so around the coastline, there's really big changes and they're going to have an impact on where we live and our food sources and resources on species distributions up and down the coastline. Going inland, the continent as a whole is warming. Plants are really fascinating because they stay in the one place. So that's really a defining difference for me between animals and working with animals and working with plants. That's Dr Rachel Gallagher from Macquarie University in Sydney. Plants are something that you can come back to and think about how they've managed to establish at that particular location, what adaptations have allowed them to really thrive there, whether they're at the edges of their range in terms of their distribution or whether they're in the centre of it. So I guess it's that spatial aspect of plants being stuck in the one place but having to have all of these wondrous adaptations to be able to deal with the environment rather than digging a burrow and hiding away or you know, flying to a new location. They really don't have those kinds of options within their lifetime and I think that's fascinating. So I'm a plant ecologist, which means that we study how many plant species there are at a location or um, how they're distributed. The climate has always changed. We've always gone through cycles of glacial and interglacial periods where the Earth's heating up and then it's cooling down. We have different ice ages and we know that that's part of the natural cycle of the planet. But right now, we're experiencing anthropogenic climate change, which is caused by humans. And what makes this type of climate change different is the rate of change. And it's much faster than a lot of species are able to cope with. That's where my research comes in, is trying to understand uh, how species, especially plants, which are fixed in that one place, how are they going to respond to rapid changes in climate? And in lots of cases, we'll see increases in extinctions, plants that just cannot cope at the location where they're currently found. We'll see plants adapting, changing their genes, changing the way they express those genes across populations. 
or we'll see movement. So we will see plant communities shifting around, the composition of plant communities changing, and individual species moving around the landscape and setting themselves up in places that we never really thought they'd be before. We know that there were palm trees in the Arctic at one point. So it's really about understanding those adaptations and how they change. So what do plants need to thrive in their environment? And what happens when something is missing from the mix? There's three main things that plants need. They need nutrients to survive and to grow. They need rainfall or precipitation to have enough water to be able to grow. And they also need sort of ideal climatic conditions that they've become adapted to. So when any of those three things goes out of, out of balance, so um, for instance, uh, drought in plant species, when we have not enough water available to support the amount of growth or photosynthesis that's going on, uh, that's when we start to see detrimental effects on the plants. And so we see things like increased mortality, more, more trees dying in the landscape. We can also see plants establishing in different locations, uh, which have more appropriate kinds of sets of conditions. And as the climate changes, the types of rainfall and temperature conditions that we get in the landscape will move around. But to get a more definitive idea of what Aussie plants are up against, Rachel and other scientists from Macquarie Uni undertook research to understand the impacts of two important climate change stresses, temperature and rainfall. So we're looking at the wide scale patterns of what structures vegetation across Australia. And we're looking at those two key drivers, the temperature at a location and the rainfall at a location. But of course, there's a myriad of other factors that are also often controlled by temperature and rainfall, like disease prevalence, that can also structure the way that species interact with each other and the kinds of communities that we find in different locations. So there's a lot of things like biotic interactions, so things like dispersal, uh, the ability of you know, a plant to attract a bird or attract a pollinator that's able to either pollinate its flowers or move its seeds around the landscape. And so they're sort of second second order questions that we can ask about how species might be able to adapt to climate change but at its kind of fundamental level we need to understand what the tolerance is of species to higher temperatures or to lower rainfall or even higher rainfall as well which can also change the kinds of species that you might find at a location. Now before Rachel and the team could determine the tolerance levels of Australia's vegetation they first had to perform what I can only describe as a kind of stock take of Australia's plants. And they did this by first breaking up the country in 100 by 100 kilometre grids. We focus on a regular grid size across Australia. So every grid cell that we make that's about 100 by 100 kilometres square, every grid cell we make we can figure out which species occur in that grid cell. And so we could do that in a different way. We could use all of New South Wales as one place and all of Queensland, but instead we break down the landscape into these macroecological units where we're able to compare the species composition between each of the different locations. Because you can imagine if you've got a larger location, so Queensland is bigger than New South Wales, if we want to compare the number of species or the tolerance to climate change of the species in those two places, it's going to be influenced by the area, like how big the state is. And so by using 100 by 100 kilometre grid cells across all of Australia, we've got a comparable measure for every location. So we can say, what's the species composition around Burke in New South Wales or Darwin in the Northern Territory? And we know we've got the same size unit that we're looking in each location. Okay, but 
how did Rachel and the team determine what vegetation was in each 100 by 100 kilometre grid? Did they spend years travelling around Australia sampling every plant? Nope. They used digital plant data. Basically, they went online and sourced high-resolution images of more than 2.5 million preserved plant specimens that are kept in Australian herbaria. The work that we've conducted recently on understanding temperature and rainfall and how that influences the potential for Australian vegetation to respond to climate change is all based on latitude and longitude coordinates of the species that are collected in the herbariums around Australia. So there's about 9 million, I believe, herbarium specimens that have been collected and digitised across Australia from our major herbariums. So we have a major herbarium in every state, including the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney. So I use the information that comes from those digitised labels that are on those dried specimens that tell us when the plant specimen was collected, where exactly it was collected in the landscape, and then other useful information like who collected it and uh, what was the vegetation like at that location. But at its fundamental level, it's really about understanding where a species occurs in the landscape. And before we had the Australian Virtual Herbarium, this was completely impossible. So over the last 15 years, we've had this wonderful transformation of the collections that currently sit in herbarium boxes across the country to sort of liberate those and turn them into digital pieces of information that we can then use to bring into our climate change research and really kind of understand where species occur and where they might occur in the future. More than 1.4 million plant specimens kept at the National Herbarium of New South Wales here in Sydney are also currently undergoing this digital transformation. And when the project's complete, these high-resolution images will be available for the whole world to access. So once Rachel determined what the typical vegetation is in these 100 by 100 kilometre grids across Australia, the next step was working out their exposure and tolerance to climate change. And this is where climate models come in. So we're thinking about 2070 and we're thinking how much is the temperature likely to change by 2070 or how much is the rainfall likely to decrease by 2070. And what we do to be able to make those estimates is use the outputs of things called global climate models, GCMs. So I am not a climate modeler, but I use the output of GCMs to try and understand the biological imprint of future climate change. And to do that, we want to understand what's the potential tolerance of the vegetation to that exposure. So if, for example, a location is going to increase in temperature by three degrees or decrease in precipitation by a thousand millimetres, we want to know how the species in those communities at those locations will be able to cope with that. And so what we've done is calculated what we would like to call a safety margin for that vegetation. To do that, we look at the typical species at a location, so it's not a species in the true sense that we have a name that we could assign to it, it's just a theoretical, typical species that you find at a location, say in Sydney or in Newcastle. The difference between the tolerance and the exposure of that typical vegetation in those 100 by 100 kilometre grids gave Rachel and the team the overall vulnerability of that vegetation to climate change. In fact, the study determined that 47% of Australia's vegetation could be at risk from increases in mean annual temperature by 2070. So what areas are the most vulnerable and what can we do with this information? 
basically all of the tropical region of Australia down into the parts of Western Australia and areas of New South Wales. It means that those are the kinds of places where we're probably likely to detect changes in vegetation. So these are the places that we might want to be focusing conservation planning efforts. These are the places that we might want to put in what we call permanent plots as ecologists, places where we mark in the landscape where they are, we set up a quadrant and we go out and we investigate what's going on in terms of species compositional turnover between the years. And so these are the places where we might actually detect that plant communities are starting to change and plant communities are starting to have new species coming in and other species leaving. So that's a phenomenon we call turnover in ecology. So that's what those 47% of places are, are most likely to undergo according to this analysis. So with nearly half of Australia's vegetation potentially affected by increases in temperature in the next 50 years, how are we planting for the future? Well, Dr. Maurizio Rosetto from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, is drilling right down to the DNA level. The DNA itself has a lot to tell through its genes. And these days, with uh, the advent of increasingly improved uh, genomic analysis, where we can study the whole genome of a species, we, we can understand uh, about the genes. So, you know, for plant species, for example, we can understand if they have the infrastructure to protect themselves against diseases and pathogens. We can understand if they have the capacity to withstand and, and survive change, such as climate change, for example. And, and all these kind of adaptive processes that uh, are part of, of what the plant, the species is all about. Everything about a species past, present and future is all written in its DNA. And Maurizio says a plant's best defence is genetic diversity. So imagine that you have uh, a pool of individuals, a big population, can even be a big population of, of thousands and thousands of individuals, but they are all relatively closely related, so the overall diversity within that population is fairly low. A new disease comes in, because the diversity is so low, none of the individuals have a mutation that will enable them to survive the mutation, and so they go extinct on the spot. You go into a different situation where the overall diversity is much higher, the new disease comes in, it might still kill the great majority of the individual, but there will be a certain percentage of individuals that have mutations that enable them to survive the disease, the population survive. It's a simplistic kind of concept, but that's, that's why diversity is useful in the long term because it provides greater capacity for the population to adapt to change, such as disease or climate change, etc. Maurizio leads the ambitious Restore and Renew project at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, that's using DNA technology to create more resilient habitats. So far, over 30,000 plants across New South Wales have been sampled for genetic analysis. And this information, it feeds into an interactive online tool that helps restoration practitioners select genetically optimal plants to future-proof plant populations. You can do that within a context of ensuring that you have highest possible survival now, but you can also do that with a, with a future-proofing plan in mind. So, you know, knowing that climate change is coming through, can I not only make sure that the population survives now, but can I make sure that it'll survive in 
2100 where, where temperature will probably be very, very different from what they are now. And not only that, but there will be also different competition, different circumstances, biotic and abiotic. So to do that, then you need to have an understanding on how genetic diversity is distributed across the species and how the genetic diversity corresponds to whatever other factor you're interested in. If it's climate, how is it associated to climate? Where there is a break between the genetic diversity associated with low climate and warm climate. So that then you can make decisions of, you know, if I want to future-proof this population but make sure that it survives locally, I might want to use 60% local material and 40% climate-adapted material and provide a mixture that will survive through the length of time. The Restore and Renew tool also relies on climate models to help make more informed decisions around planting for the future. You can also download climate models that will tell you where can you find climatic environmental conditions that are similar to the ones at your site. So that's an important thing to, to remember when, when you're doing those decisions, you don't need, you shouldn't be looking at the model of how your species is going to be impacted. The model is there and is accessible and it's for you to make decision if, if you need to climate proof the species or not. But to make the decision about your site, you need to see how your site is impacted. So then you can overlap the map. The map will show the genetic provenance for your species at your site. It will show you similar environmental conditions to your site. So you can then choose local provenance, local conditions, if that's what you want. And it will also show you where are the conditions that your site will experience in 2070. So in 2070, your site will, be, will have very different conditions. So where can I look for material that is already experiencing those conditions so that you can then climate proof your restoration project based on that information? There is clearly an amazing variety of scientific tools and techniques being used by researchers to assess, understand and try to mitigate the impacts of climate change and we are constantly learning more and more on what to do and how to do it. The thing is we have to act quickly and, and we have to resource those actions as, as needed. Despite Maurizio, Rachel and Stephanie being faced with the sobering statistics around climate change on a daily basis, it's important to remain optimistic about the future and the scientific work being done. I know there are ways to adapt. We have both a climate research team and a climate change adaptation team in New South Wales government. We're working together with a lot of organisations to improve our carbon footprint, if you like, on the earth and improve society's understanding of climate change. So I think my optimism is driven by the fact that there's more awareness of climate change and that people are trying to make the right choices now towards sustainability. And even though vegetation is being impacted by climate change, it's actually the very thing that will help reduce heat and the stresses it places on us. So not only is the vegetation cover important, but where that cover is. So we have a lot of cover in national parks that is susceptible to bushfire, heat and a lot of other climate stresses. But in the urban regions, we have something called the urban heat island effect. 
And so when you have lack of vegetation and you have a lot of man-made buildings or your pavements, for example, they are absorbing a lot of heat. They're not going through any transpiration processes or anything that plants are doing. And you can have temperature in those regions that is 6 to 10 or more degrees Celsius warmer than maybe a suburb across or even a street across. If you have a lot of people living in that area, if, if whether that's the elderly, whether it's youth, whether they're low socioeconomic status or even high, it doesn't matter. If you have a lot of people living in an area where you don't have enough vegetation, then they are more vulnerable to heat strain. And this is why it's really important for us to think about our vegetation, think about your shade cover in summertime, how much shade do you have? How is that going to help you when it's really humid or when it's really hot? So that's why there's a really big push to increase urban vegetation. And New South Wales government is doing a lot towards that at the moment. And you don't need to be a scientist to help because on an individual, everyday level, there are loads of things we can all do. So plastics, for example, you have a choice. What do you take to the supermarket, for example? Do you take your green bags? How many green bags do you own? At the end of the day, do you store your leftovers with Gladwrap? Or do you use a beeswax wrap or just a container, for example? When you brush your teeth, what's your toothbrush made out of? When you're using your air conditioning, do you really have to set it to 16 degrees Celsius in the middle of summer? Or is 22 degrees Celsius or 24 degrees Celsius fine? Do you have solar panels on your roof? These are all changes we can make in our daily lives, meat consumption as well. And they are not too difficult. You just need to put them in practice very slowly. So anytime we're making radical shifts, uh, societal shifts, cultural shifts, people are going to be resistant, they're going to be nervous, and they may not succeed. There's always going to be failure. But doing these changes slowly is a really gentle way of changing our lifestyles and being more sustainable and helping the planet. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. If you liked today's episode, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. It helps more people discover the surprising world of plants. Next episode, we're exploring Aussie bush foods with Drew Roberts. You'll discover the incredible uses of some of our native Australian plants in traditional Aboriginal cooking, as well as modern recipes. You'll also hear from scientists based at the Australian Botanic Garden and how they're projecting the future of these special native species. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode of Branch Out was produced by Zoe Ferguson. Ferguson.